Hello, everybody, and welcome back to this edition of the About Tree Review podcast, here to amplify diverse voices in media. I'm your host, as always, that guy named John. Make sure to follow the podcast on social media at About Tree Review on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast on your podcast platform of choice. It is on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Alexa via TuneIn, Blueberry, and you can also stream the episodes directly from the website abouttreeview.com, which is where you can find full links to the show notes and guests. While you are on the website abouttreeview.com, if you want to support the show, there's a direct link to PayPal if you are feeling generous. There's also a link to an Amazon wish list. So if you have always wondered what things would really help out a podcast studio, specifically the About to Review podcast studio, go ahead and click that link and support if you can. This episode is specifically about the Vancouver Asian Film Festival, which I attended just a few days ago. This is Canada's oldest Asian film festival. It is a four-day festival. Unfortunately, I was only able to go to two of those days because in the span of seven days, I covered three different festivals. So it was really crazy. (laughs) But in that two days, I was able to see some great panels, some great short films, and some great feature films, which I will be talking about and picking up my favorites later in the episode. This episode will also feature interviews with festival directors, Lin Lee and Regina Leung, as well as a host of filmmakers, which include Mayumi Yoshida, Natch Dustimeta, Alex Chu, Alexandra Cuerdo. It is going to be great. So before we get into those interviews and my favorite films of the festival, that is a lot of alliteration, uh, we will get into the original theme song created by Damien Randall of Ill-Mannered Media. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. First off, before we go into my favorite films and the interviews, I just have to give a huge thank you to Lin Lee and Barbara Lee and Regina Leung for giving me the opportunity to cover this incredible festival. As my listeners know, I go to Vancouver and cover quite a few festivals throughout the year, but this was my first time covering the Vancouver Asian Film Festival, and I wanted to give them just a huge shout out. They are incredible, as well as the Vancouver film community. I always feel welcome. I always just feel embraced, and it is just a really good time every time I go up there. So a huge thank you to them. Also, again, thank you to my guests, who you will be hearing a little bit later. So Mayumi Yoshida, Natch Dustimeta, Alex Chu, Alexandra Cuerdo. They were amazing. Uh, And also... A special thanks to the people who this weekend were really kind of my rock and my center um, and also helped me just in various ways, just kind of getting around town. Uh, so Philip Planta, um, of course, just for being a great guy as normal, uh, Nicholas Ayerbe Barona, who 
is one of my really good buddies up in Vancouver who I met with the first festival that I ever covered up there a couple years ago. And also a massive thank you to my buddy, Chris McRonnie, who, again, as well as being welcoming uh, in general, also welcomed me into his home and let me crash on his couch for a couple days, which was awesome, <laughs> knowing that I was only going to be in Vancouver for like 48 hours and I was going to be at the festival the whole time. Uh, it was just great to be able to have a home base and just crash out and also get to stay up until like 4 a.m. playing Red Dead Redemption 2. Uh, that was also pretty cool. So thank you, Chris. Uh, that was amazing. Uh, okay, so a little bit more about the Vancouver Asian Film Festival. As I mentioned, this is Canada's oldest Asian film festival. This was its 22nd year. There were 13 programs, two industry panels, 35 films in total, as well as 12 Canadian premieres, and they were expecting around 4,000 people to attend in this four-day festival. It was crazy. <laughs> so, and the screenings were pleasantly packed for quite a few of them, which I always like seeing. Because then it is like, oh, okay, even in this four-day festival with screenings back-to-back-to-back, there are still people who really want to see the diversity in programming. So that was really nice. So on Saturday, when I first got into town, literally like 20 minutes into Vancouver, I went straight to the venue, uh, found a back room in the theater, set my stuff down, and changed. And then it was screening time. Or actually, no, it was not screening time. It was panel time first, and then screening time. The first panel that I saw on Saturday was Diversity and Representation in Canadian Film and TV. Now, this was moderated by Bessie Chow, and the panelists included uh, Kashif Pasta, John Worth, Sunny Wang, and Lien Yung. Young. Sorry about that. Uh, I hope that was somewhat close. So, and that panel really represented multiple aspects of the Canadian TV and film industry from, you know, directors like Kashif to showrunners like John Worth. Uh, Sonny has <laughs> been a creative director of a multitude of things as well as the Leo Awards. And Lien, she is actually an anchor on CBC News. So with multiple aspects kind of ranging from TV to or like news, like journalism TV, to then scripted TV to movies, I really liked the way that they structured that. So that was really nice. Um, one of the biggest things they talked about, I'm just going to go over some like quick hits of the panels that I saw. So they talked about John, especially, you know, he is the current showrunner for Woo Assassins, which is coming out on Netflix in July, I believe. Uh, fingers crossed. And I need it. I need everybody to cross their fingers for this one. I might be able to do some interviews with the cast of Woo Assassins. So wish me luck on that front. The show looks incredible so far. But he talks about how the inclusion and representation is great, and that is needed, but the authenticity of those characters is truly what is important. And so with a show like Wu Assassins, you know, which calls for a Chinese cast, they really did their due diligence to find Chinese actors to portray those roles. Because again, having that 
diversity, having that representation and inclusion is awesome. Having a predominantly Asian cast is great. But again, like try and find that authenticity where you can, understanding that it sometimes can be difficult. And justifiably, some actors, you know, might not want to get just kind of shoved in certain roles just because they are X ethnicity. So that authenticity plays on multiple levels, and that is what is truly important. Uh, Kashif talked about the importance of writing your own story. All too often, regardless of what form of media you are in, you can see parts of you know yourself and that character, parts of things that you might have gone through in your life or are going through in your life, but the only thing that truly is going to be genuine is if you write it and if you help bring that thing into the world. So just talked about write your own story. That allows you the freedom of expression to do kind of whatever you want as opposed to kind of working within a certain system or hoping for a certain opportunity, create that opportunity, you know, for yourself. That was just, that was really great to hear, especially with some of the audience members who are everybody from beginning filmmakers or beginning writers to established people in the film community. Uh, Leanne talked also about just getting bodies through the door has to be the first step. You know, and she is coming at that from a news and journalistic point of view, which she was saying with the CBC, they only have about 5% people of color. And from when she started a couple years ago or a few years ago, that number was about like two or three percent. So they are making progress, but just getting people in the door. And I think panels like this and festivals like the Vancouver Asian Film Festival really help that process because then you have people who can go to these events and be like, oh, this is how I could get into X industry or this is a story of how somebody got into X industry. How about I find a way to create my own avenue so I can also, you know, make my way towards that if that is your goal. So just getting in front of more people, telling more people and giving more people the tools to pursue their dreams is the start. We got to get those bodies through the door. So that was great. During the Q&A um, after the panel, one of the people in the audience asked John who, you know, on this panel, uh, he was the, you know, white guy on the panel. Uh, he was that representation of that demographic. And somebody just flat out asked him. They're like, okay, these stories that we want to get made, these important, diverse, inclusive stories that we want to get made about either our people or our heritage, whatever that might be, do we still need a... Do we still need somebody who looks like you to open that door? And it kind of it kind of got silent for a second, you know, because that is kind of a on-the-spot, somewhat awkward question. John really took it in stride. And he said, unfortunately, yes. Sometimes you do, and unfortunately it is all too often, you do need somebody who looks like him. Because he can walk into a room... And this is just an industry problem in general that is systemic. And, you know, there are a lot of things that we can do to help this. But as it is right now, he 
I mean, he talked about it. he knows people who have gone to pitch shows or gone to pitch ideas, and for whatever reason, either they were not listened to as intently or not listened to at all, versus somebody who looks like him. You know, being a middle-aged white man in this industry, that opens doors, that allows meetings, that really can lead the conversation in a different way. And so with him, the difference with what he is doing is he is being that ally, as opposed to being, you know, that representative who then takes those opportunities. He is like, okay, through my skill set and through my connections, I can get your story through the door. But once it is there, we can work together. Like we can actually have a thing that we work on together. So, and that is what allies should do in a perfect world is help people get through those doors that they're having difficulty getting through. And then maybe take a little step back. You know, even if you're working on the show together and roles are what they are in the industry, help people get through that door. So yeah, that was also really neat. And again, the need for representation is also more about the need for just acknowledgement. That I think is the core message that a lot of people were driving home during this panel. Is representation? Great. Acknowledgement? Even better. So, and I forget who it was. I think it was Sonny who talked about how he gave this really great analogy. Where right now, you know, we kind of, multitude of uh, people of color in diverse groups, we kind of get pigeonholed into certain areas. And we're on these little tiles and in these boxes what we really should strive to do as opposed to like that melting pot ideology, which melting pot, you kind of lose flavors and you're constantly trying to balance flavors. The difference is, and the analogy that Key gave is a mosaic. So having people being able to tell their individual, unique representation stories. And then when you start to pan out a little bit, you see the broader picture. You see that that larger picture is representation. So that was just, that was a unique analogy that I'd never really heard it in that way before in that kind of mosaic. So yeah, that was the first panel that I went to, the diversity and representation in Canadian film and TV. And also all of the links to these panels and to the films you can find on VAF's website, which is vaff.org. So I'll put a link in the show notes. Just click that and you can kind of search for the panels and the films that I will be talking about. The second panel that I saw on Saturday was Asian Women in Film. Now, this was moderated by Ritesh Matlani and the panelists were Olivia Chang, who is an actor from Marco Polo and Arrow and a few other projects, uh, filmmaker Alexandra Cuerdo, who is a director and producer of Ulam Main Dish, Spoiler alert, I will be talking about that film later and talking to her later. Uh, and then the other panelist was Mia Fiona Cut, uh, who is the actor, director, and producer of the short film Sonder. Now, when, it, when they really started talking about this panel of Asian women in film, they got more into, and again, not necessarily the representation, but what those filmmakers were specifically going for in the projects, in the projects that they were working on. And so Mia talked about how she wanted to go beyond acting. She wanted to help women. She really wanted to kind of create those stories 
to help women in general and not just kind of be an actor in her story. Let that story speak to other women and let them know that they're not alone in these struggles. Uh, Ali or Alexandra talked about how when she was working at BuzzFeed, you had to learn how to own the entire project that you were working on. So how Mia was saying that, you know, she wanted to go beyond acting and help women. Ali was saying that, yeah, the important thing also is owning your project, whether it was the writing, the directing, the editing, whatever aspects you were comfortable with, own it. And of course, ask for help, you know, when you need it, but own as much of the project as you can. Uh, what was interesting also is that tied it into her film, Ulam Main Dish, which is a documentary about Filipino food. She gave this wonderful uh, visual where especially, you know, since her documentary is about food and culture and identity and what those associations are, she said that when you are sick, you know, when you are a kid and whatever version of chicken noodle soup that your mom made, and it could be totally different depending on what culture, whether it is a pho or a ramen or traditional chicken noodle soup, whatever it is, that thing that you have that memory attached to, that will never be taken away. And so with food in particular, when it comes to representation and authenticity, nobody can beat mom's bowl of chicken soup. But it is about exploring those opportunities, being like, okay, I have that memory. I know what it means to me. But let me go try some other foods from other cultures and be immersed in those other cultures just to open my eyes and potentially explore those different tastes and different feelings and really what that that means. So that was a, that was a cool way of thinking about it. It's just that nobody will beat your mom's chicken soup. But explore. Find other things. Uh, Olivia talked about her experience with Marco Polo in particular and the other period pieces that she has done. And she said that because she got challenged, you know, quite a bit with some of the portrayals that she has had in these period pieces. And she said that the more you have to dig into a character, the more you learn about yourself along the way. Because again, if you're having to kind of break down this character and what they were doing at the time, what the culture was doing at the time, you start really analyzing yourself and your position in the world. And that is what drives you. That is really what kind of elevates your craft. Uh, and <laughs> one of the, the interesting things also is that she said that uh, even though in those times when you kind of get worried about your status as an actor on set and not really wanting to rub people the wrong way, you know, those showrunners, those writers, those directors, having that confidence to at least bring it up. So there was a situation where her character in Marco Polo was supposed to have this intense relationship with a daughter, and there was all this stuff written into the script, and she brought it to the attention of the showrunner. She was like, okay, this is where my character character's journey is, and this is what they're feeling. There is not a single scene between these two characters who are supposed to be so connected and so involved. It took her bringing that to the attention of the showrunner for them to be like, oh my gosh, you're right. How about we find a way to make that happen? So owning your own agency and having just the confidence to do something like that, 
you know, because that took her digging into the character, researching the character for her to kind of realize that, that they had not. So that was, just, that was, an, that was a really cool story. Uh, and then also are the writers giving you something to do, especially with Asian women in film. And they talked about this very often. There's that kind of dragon lady stereotype. And so when you start doing period pieces, when you start doing other things to try and avoid that, not even necessarily try and avoid that, but really just look at those character portrayals and be like, okay, what is this character actually doing? And is the writing good enough to balance out what they're expecting me to do? So that was a great panel. Uh, I really enjoyed it. So it was the Asian women in film. Uh, So then right after those panels, I went into a block of short films. Uh, Over that two days that I was at the festival, I watched 24 uh, short films in total. Uh, I'm only going to talk about a couple because I really want to just make sure, you know, we get to the interviews with the filmmakers, which I know a lot of you are here for. So what I'm going to talk about are three honorable mentions for these short films uh, and then my three favorites. My three best festival picks for short films for the Vancouver Asian Film Festival. After that, uh, all I really am going to do is talk about my favorite feature-length film. Again, unfortunately, I was only able to see a couple of them. So it was, I mean, almost a coin flip, literally. You know, I really had to think about which one was going to be my favorite. But as for the short films, so my first honorable mention was a short film called Frenchies by Quan Fu Lin. Now, this is a fantasy satire essentially about immigration and change and what that means uh, and how that can affect a, a neighborhood, or not even a neighborhood, a neighbor, you could say. So this person, you know, you see these news clips and certain people are like, I don't know, you know, if if we're ready to have them in our neighborhood, and I just wish they would bathe more, and just saying things that we frequently hear, unfortunately, when it comes to immigration stories, turns out the people that they were talking about were quote-unquote humans, uh, yet they have heads of French bulldogs. So this neighbor, uh, or this person in an apartment building, has new neighbors, it is this family of Frenchies, and he is trying to come to grips with reality of this situation and things that he sees and things that his mind is playing tricks on, but essentially what this really boiled down to was just about that fear of change and that fear of the quote-unquote others and what their introduction to your worldview, what effects it has. So it was really funny. It was all done in black and white and shot incredibly crisply. Crisply? I do not think that is a word at all. Is it crisply? Crispy? (laughs) Anyway, uh, but yes, it was shot very well. It is also really late at night as I'm recording this. So I apologize for those little slip-ups. But yeah, shot really well. It was funny. The Whatever they were, whether they were like some animatronics or CGI, however they did the Frenchie look was really cool and expressive and unique. So yeah, so Frenchies gets my uh, first honorable mention. My second honorable mention uh, goes to Sonder. 
Now, this is the film that I mentioned earlier that Mia Fiona uh, cut. She is the actor, director, and producer of Sonder and Chris McGrani. He actually was a producer on this film as well. And this one was interesting. It kind of leads you down a couple different alleys. Um, as far as in, you know, in a short film, I think it was only, I want to say like 12 minutes, 18 minutes. It was, it was pretty short, but it layered the story in an interesting way where this young woman is obviously going through a tragedy and we see her coping through that tragedy and we see the loss and the pain that she is trying to work through. And part of that, she's trying to work through it by doing uh, silks, which the choreography of the silks, whether that was Mia or somebody else performing it, really cool, like really well done. There's some great underwater uh, videography done. So we see this kind of juxtaposition of love and loss versus coping and who is kind of... It, and again, it depends on who is telling the story because we see a couple different interactions within the movie are things the way that we are led to believe through her, like through Aveline. So, yeah, really well done. And again, I, I like just the way it was shot. The characters were well done. So that was Sonder. And again, all the clips or all of the links to these films will be in the description below. Uh, and then my last honorable mention, a film that I had a blast with that apparently is also part of a web series, but we got to see it kind of in a short film aspect as he works through some other things. So that was called Followers Wi-Fi Interrupted uh, by Milton Ng. And this was hilarious. Uh, Essentially, there's a group of superheroes, all named after, in a different way, so you could avoid copyright issues, the social media channels. So, Tube Man is the leader of this group. There is Chirper Man, Snap Talk Man, Instagirl, and Face. So, <laughs> he had to get creative with the logos, he had to get creative with the names, but essentially, they live in Wi-Fi City. And the villain is Hater, and he is trying to steal all of the Wi-Fi. Really funny. Uh, but more impressive than the comedy was the way this was filmed. Like There was this really cool top-down perspective from a drone that was similar to like a... Almost like a JRPG battle arena style game where you see the character on the left-hand side with a little health bar... That was just really well done. So this is something that I definitely am going to be keeping an eye on because this is a web series, but there were some, I guess, some issues with certain logos and certain companies not wanting their logos out there. So where this goes from here, I'm not quite sure, but Milton is definitely on my radar uh, for this, for followers, Wi-Fi interrupted. Uh, the... Last, I guess, no, there, I had one more uh, one more honorable mention. Uh, it was number four. I thought I only did three. Uh, just kidding. So, my last honorable mention 
is Tokyo Lovers uh, by Mayumi Yoshida, uh, as well as Philip Planta, Jerome Yu, Natch Dustimata. Sorry about that, buddy. I know you tried to coach me on how to say it, and I get it right like one out of every four times. So I apologize for that. So Tokyo Lovers tells the story. I mean, it, it, it would be disingenuous for me to say for me to say star-crossed lovers. These are really just star-crossed friends as they quickly form this bond through misadventure uh, and kind of misguided souls. They are both they both find themselves in one place for different reasons and then start to develop this really sweet endearing friendship you know over this crazy 24 to 48 hour period um i talked to mayumi and natch later in the episode so you will hear plenty more about uh tokyo lovers but i really liked this film i liked the way it was shot in this kind of guerrilla style where they were in tokyo among other places and they're like cool we have all this gear to make a movie in our backpacks we're on vacation but our friends are here also. How about we make a film? So that I just totally respect. So Tokyo Lovers. All right. Now to my top three favorite short films of the Vancouver Asian Film Festival. Uh, number three uh, was another one. It was a comedy uh, similar to, well, not similar, very different than Followers, but uh, comedy nonetheless. It was called Bunny Man. Now, Bunny Man is... Uh, made by Athena Han, and it basically is these this group of Taiwanese young Taiwanese uh, friends just kind of hanging out at a diner, having a discussion on identity and the terms FOB and CBC, which was fresh off the boat and Chinese born Cana- or Canadian born Chinese, and what those two terms mean to this you know small group of four friends. Some of them are incredibly offended by those terms. Some of them embrace those terms because of how they view them. All throughout this discussion of identity and what these things mean, a person in a bunny suit walks into the restaurant and just deadpan stares at them the whole time. They end up having various interactions with said bunny man. There's a big twist at the end, almost literally. Uh, But... Overall, I mean, it was not only it was just it was funny. It was well done, but it had some of those core issues, you know, of identity and understanding and how one person's experience, even in your same minority group, can view something completely differently. So Bunny Man is my number three choice. My number two choice, Buy or Beware uh, by Victoria Angel. So this is. Another comedy. Apparently, I really like comedies as I look down. Uh, yeah, there, there are quite a few of them on here. But yeah, Buyer Beware essentially is a real estate ghost story. Yeah, that about sums it up. Where a couple is wanting to buy a house. They see this house. It is just beat to hell. But it has a super chippy real estate agent who has a spin for every one of their negatives which any of us who have been around property managers or real estate agents before, that is their job. So, of course, this tied into the housing crisis that both Vancouver and Seattle, both very much affected by these days, this rundown house, you know, was also a million dollars. 
So as they're going through, like one of the the characters, the the boyfriend essentially, or the husband, he was like, "Ah, uh, this is smaller than we thought." And she was like, "Yes, it does have a functional design, doesn't it?" And she just has a positive spin on everything. They of course go down to the basement, start seeing a bunch of creepy things, but the house has a yard, and the house is a house, and so they end up kind of trying to justify what they are seeing, both spiritually and metaphysically, and the reality of the housing the housing crisis that they are faced with. So really funny, great performances. Like this is a small cast; there are only a couple of people. Uh, Grace and I, I forget the actor's name, the other actor's name. But yeah, really funny, solid cast. Uh, so yeah, that was buy or beware. That was my number two, to- number two choice. So my number one choice for a short film that I saw at the Vancouver Asian Film Festival 2018 was a film called Eve uh, by Alex Shin. This was a Terminator-esque style future sci-fi in that a young inventor uh, creates an artificial intelligence. He names her Eve shocking uh then he gets a visitor to his door essentially being like you sent me from the future to take care of a situation now before it becomes a bigger deal down the road in the very near future so this was 27 minutes so it is on the kind of longer side of a short film depending i mean compared to some of the other ones in this block that were about 10 minutes This one, one of the things that I really liked about this were the really subtle attention to the graphic detail, like to the graphics and visual stylings. As Eve is kind of facing the camera and going through various like system updates and uploading, there was like this electronic graph on her eyelid that just kind of would be pulsating. Little things like that were just really unique and really interesting, even though the story itself Yes, is is similar to a lot of things that we have seen before, especially those of us who love sci-fi. But the way it was done was interesting. There was also a lot of comedy as he really starts having conversations with this person from the future that he supposedly sent back. So this is from uh, Korea. Uh, it was all in Korean. Or, yeah, most of it was in Korean. But yeah, really clever uh, twist on that terminator style so eve is my number one short and now for my final film oh yeah i also saw in that shorts program i was wavering whether to put this in shorts or features uh, but drawn together comics diversity and stereotypes by harleen singh this one was about an hour long so i was not sure where to put it so i kind of sandwiched it between my shorts and my feature uh but it was good it was it profiled three different artists, you know, in various mediums uh, who are confronting racism and confronting these ideologies in various ways, whether it is through uh, cartooning, like with Keith or Vish. He is a Sikh man who dresses as Captain America and kind of goes around and shows people that there is more than one way to see a hero. Um and then Eileen Carr, she is also an illustrator. This one, I mean, it touched on some really important ideas. I just feel like even in that hour, not all not all of them were as fleshed 
fleshed out as I would have liked. But it's still a well-put-together, kind of hour-long documentary profiling these three artists. Okay, so now, <laughs> my number one uh, film for the Vancouver Asian Film Festival is For Izzy by Alex Chu. Now, this was a feature film, or, well, of course it was feature film. Uh, it was the closing night film of the festival, and it tells a story of two sets of parents, and, you know, they each have a child who is going through various struggles and various just trials and tribulations and how they react to them, how they're trying to help them through their journey while these two adults are also realizing at their age and stage, what can they do? You know, so that, that feeling kind of helplessness, but also just family and sacrifice. One of the poignant things that the dad says who has a um, differently abled daughter and she is on the spectrum played incredibly uh, well. I mean, the whole cast from this was just spectacular. But the dad said that, you know, in this kind of interview segment, he was like, I never had dreams, so I never had any regrets. And he says it with like this really just sad smile to the camera, and it just breaks your heart. Because, yeah, going out, going through your life without any regrets... Sure. But if that is based on that you never had any dreams or you were not able to pursue or even think about having dreams because of how life kind of happened. It was just it was really beautiful. It was, it was a great moment. This also the editing of this. Whew, this took some time. There are multiple video formats. Different characters have different types of cameras they are using throughout the movie. So that was also special. And as one of the, the children, the other daughter, is going through drug addiction and relapse and all of these things, and she says at one point, finding somebody who loves you more than the drugs love you. That is the challenge. So there were multiple points in this movie where the characters are just dropping some serious knowledge and just life lessons as they're in the thick of it, as they're going through these situations that are brutal. So yeah, Alex Chu, um, I spoke with him at the after party. There will be an interview with him here in just a little bit. But for Izzy is actually going to be uh, on demand in just actually like a few days. November 15th is when it will be getting released. So definitely check this one out. Put it on your radar. It is called For Izzy by Alex Chu. All right, so that was me talking about a whole bunch of the things that I got to see in this crazy 24 hours that I was in Vancouver. Uh, so now I'm going to cut to the interviews that I did with Lin Lee and Regina Leung, uh, Mayumi Yoshida, Natch Dutstimeta, Alex Chu, and Alexandra Cuerdo. We talk about their films, we talk about the festival, we talk about kind of where their path you know, has taken them and where it goes from here. So after those interviews, I will come back, do a little wrap-up. And yeah, thank you again to the Vancouver Asian Film Festival, to all the volunteers, to the festival directors. It was a whirlwind. It was a very uh, quick... I literally got into Vancouver and within 20 minutes was at the theater 
in panels and then I was in screenings for the next six hours one day and the next day I was there for like 10. Not only in the same theater for that long, I was pretty much in the same seat uh, for that long, but it was great. I got to hang out with some incredible people, not just my my friends up there who I have become close to after traveling and going up there frequently, but new people, new connections, new friends. So yeah, so enjoy the interviews uh, with everybody that I just mentioned, and I will be back to do a wrap-up after that. Sitting down with the festival director of the Vancouver Asian Film Festival, Lynn Lee. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. And Regina Leung, the sponsorship and PR coordinator for the festival. Welcome to you as well. Thank you. So this is the first time that I have been covering this festival, uh, and it has been an absolute blast. Thank you. The films have been incredible. The community that you guys have garnered and the support that you have is just pretty incredible. Now, this is the 22nd? Yep, that's right. Wow. This is my uh, first year uh, being um, in charge of running Mm -hmm. the festival. But I've been involved in the festival for uh, about two years now. Okay. Um, I actually moved back from Asia, from uh, working in China for many years. And when I came back, I happened to meet some friends who uh, are executives um, uh, at the festival and in- inducted me into, you know, going to uh, see some films at the festival. Mm-hmm. And I fell in love with the festival because I saw how passionate uh, and dedicated everybody was trying to promote Asian culture, uh, talent, filmmakers um, through film. And uh, I really wanted to be involved. And uh, I, I lucked out because the festival director was stepping down and needed help. Right. So that's how I started. Very cool. cool. And now, Regina, what about you? Well, um, let's see. This is my fifth year. So I've been involved since, what, year 2013? Mm-hmm. That I was um, doing sponsorship, sponsorship director. Um, this past year, I was stepping down and kind of just supporting mm-hmm. uh, for the festival. So it's been, it's been fun, definitely. It's been exciting. Now, especially yeah. from the sponsorship and PR side of things, like yeah. I mentioned, the community that you have garnered, not just in Vancouver, but just the greater just Canadian territories. Now, from a PR perspective, what are some of those main things that when you go to new sponsors that separates this festival from the other ones that you are kind of spoiled with choice with here in Vancouver? Every like corporate sponsors, they all have their specific mandate. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, you know, it's kind of like a matchmakers. So right. you find the one that they will like your festival, they like your mandate, and then you match with them. Then you create a synergy to work that side together. So it's sort of, it's always, I just feel that it's always like, you know, matchmaker type of jobs to, to do that, to match the sponsors. So, I mean, I, you know, sometimes not all of them is from Vancouver. A lot of them is definitely is has the Toronto corporate. And mm-hmm. um, because here the island culture, a lot of our local corporation also support that too as well. But, you know, different organizations, there are different mandate. So it's a lot of research, a lot of development right. to find your key partners, to find your partners. And certain things, they would like to have certain programs to fit with what they're looking for, gotcha. if similar objectives. 
between the festival and the corporate, and then we'll find a way to make it work. Now speaking, Lynn, to the kind of that matchmaking aspect, you know, and this being your first year as festival director, what were some things that you really wanted to connect with? I wanted to connect with a wider audience, and that's why one of the really key things that we tried to do throughout the year was really going out to talk to more um, communities, uh, more community partners, and uh, get their support and support their events um, to to let more people know uh, about the, how great the festival is and um, how wonderful it is to, to have more diversity um, mm -hmm. in, in content, in talent, and also in terms of uh, marketing, um, really getting the word out there. We worked really hard uh, through our social media, through promotions, um, to, to make sure more people are aware uh, and notice um, the festival because it's, it's such an amazing community and we always actually get a lot of great work from Asian and Asian diasporic uh, filmmakers from all over the world mm -hmm. and we just need people to know that. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. I mean, I was just really impressed because being a four-day festival, I mean, you had features, you had Canadian premieres in short films. I mean, it just, it ran such a wide variety yet it still had the same tones. You know, those themes of diversity, those themes of inclusion ran throughout all of the, the programming. So that was just really impressive. Thank you so much. Yeah. Now again, since this is your first time as <laughs> festival director, yes. what are some things that you really want to see in year two and year three? Well, I think um, uh, baby steps. Uh, mm -hmm. we, we really want to have a bigger festival. We really hope to get more sponsors um, mm -hmm. so that we can have more days because uh, we are increasingly getting more submissions from right. around the world. And uh, it's, it's very interesting. Um, uh, I, I talk to a lot of people outside of Canada and they know of us. And, awesome. and so um, and that, that speaks volumes uh, to you know, how people really uh, find it important um, to have diversity in, in film. Um, throughout North America and around the world. And so um, we really hope to expand um, the number of days. So that's what we really want to work on. Um, and uh, continue to, to really foster more local talent mm -hmm. and to be able to showcase the work. So these are like some of the, the key things that I'm re really hoping to see. What was the number of features that you guys had or maybe a total number of Things that were shown. Films, yeah. Films that were shown. Um, we we had a total of thirteen programs mm -hmm. and two uh, industry panels. So um, we showed a total number of uh, 35. thirty-five. Yeah, thirty-five, 35 films. Yeah, uh, it would have been more, but um, we we actually had a, a fair amount of longer short films, mm -hmm. and we try to pair shorts with feature films in some of our programs as well. Um, and people love that. Um, I, I noticed the reactions. Um, and we, we really uh, had a really wonderful lineup that um, everything just worked very well together. So um, a total of 35 films, shorts, documentaries, features. Um, and, and we're so happy we, we got to feature uh, animation and also some sci-fi as well. And even horror. I, w I was actually a huge fan of the sci-fi 
Uh, there were two Korean yeah. short films that, oddly enough, both had to do with AI. Yeah. Uh, those were great. Yeah. So Amazing I really enjoyed those. Korea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how many submissions total did oh, yeah. you guys have this year? Um, we actually had a significantly increased amount. Um, it was close to 300. Oh, jeez. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So whittling 300 submissions down to it's 35. A, yes, a very challenging job. Yeah. yeah. So when people ask me what was the most challenging thing, that was the most challenging thing. Nice. And then, Regina, what would you say has been the most rewarding thing about this year's festival? We already heard the challenge, which is whittling down the 300 to 35. But what would you say uh, has been the biggest success? I think, um, yeah, well... I would say this year we give a lot of opportunity. I say a lot of opportunity for happen to be a lot of female filmmakers, and it's something that is so big that I never expected for the last few years. I mean, years and years. So sometimes we have a lot of movies come, uh, but a lot of time is uh, male filmmaker, and this year we have a lot of female filmmakers. And the other rewarding that I seen it is a lot of documentary. Because I personally is uh, I love documentary. I mm-hmm. like making documentary. So I was quite pleased to see that documentary is rewarding. To want to, that's why I make this one out there to tell people Asians filmmakers can make documentary, <laughs> not just doing a story. Or so yeah. I must add to that. I, I was yeah. just so blown away. It wasn't even pre like we, we didn't intentionally go and try to seek out female director's work. Mm-hmm. It was after we programmed everything that we noticed, my goodness, it was exactly 50% of the that work. Was that actually was actually yeah. something that I noticed when I was going through the brochure mm-hmm. that first yeah. day that I was here on Saturday. I was going through and every page has female filmmakers. Yeah. And that was just, that was incredible. Because again, yeah. it is something that when you take a minority community and then you whittle it down even more and more. And it just so to see that there's representation on more than one front was just really special. I, I think what to me as a woman is very exciting is that we are breaking that traditional mold or, or, or stereotype mm-hmm. that uh, women don't speak up, we're, we're very polite, we're subversive, whatever. But all these amazing women are telling great, complex unique like never imagined stories and and that's really exciting excellent so what are some parting words you know now that the festival has wrapped we're at the after party if you could not tell uh dear (laughs) listeners (laughs) sipping on my beer right so what would be some parting words from this the 22nd vancouver asian film festival regina how about we start with you uh i feel like everything is like we are on the go daily Mm-hmm. Non-stop until today. Yeah. Yeah. That's just my last words. <laughs> That's <Yeah>. it. <laughs> so continually on the uh, go. <laughs> continually on the go. Nice. Yeah. And Lynn. Teamwork makes a dream work. It was a dream come true for me, and without my entire team, including Regina, including um, my marketing team. Uh, operations, the programming team, mm-hmm. everybody. Um, it was it was uh, a, a great journey and a fantastic start for a first year to be able to achieve so much with um, with the little resources that we really have. Mm-hmm. 
Excellent. So as I, as I said earlier, I have been talking to festival director, Lin Lee, and sponsorship and PR coordinator, Regina Leung. So thank you both uh, for your time and also with people who want to follow with what VAP is doing throughout the year and then also with this festival, what are the best places where they can get that information? Good. So please go on www.vaff.org, V-A-F-F.org, and follow us on social media, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at VAF Vancouver. And hashtag V-A-F-F. <laughs> Perfect. I will thank you both again. Thank you thank so you much for so having much. us, John. Thank you for coming up. Yeah, no, it was, it was my pleasure. I definitely will be coming up again. Vancouver loves thank you. you. Oh, thank yeah. you. <laughs> So joining the show for the second time, Mayumi Yoshida, and joining for the first time, partner in crime, uh, is Natch Dusty Meta. Hello. <laughs> Welcome <laughs> to the show. Exciting. Both first of you. time. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Of course. So this year at Vancouver Asian Film Festival, you guys actually had two films that you showed. So first one was Tokyo Lovers. And then the other one was Kyoto, which translates into the way of the bow. Oh, Kudo. Q oh, okay. See, <laughs> I was about to make myself sound smart and be like, I already knew that definition, but I did not. It's okay. Kudo. Yes. <laughs> two some okay, two yes. syllables. Gotcha. <laughs> Nailed it. <laughs> so starting with Tokyo Lovers. So this film, uh, first of all, it was great. Mm -hmm. um, I love the characters, the development, but what I love the most is the guerrilla-style filmmaking that you guys did <laughs> while you were in Japan. So definitely talk about that. You filmed in multiple locations while you were in Japan for what, like five days? It was eight days. Eight days. Yes. Eight days, four cities. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we that, that, that was the time of overlap. So that's when we had all our crew. We were, we were both in Japan for like maybe three weeks yeah, total. Yeah, but yeah, we yeah, had yeah, eight yeah. days to basically plan From out the shoot. December 25th is when Phil and Y arrived. Okay. And then we shot from... Uh, Until like January 3rd. You know what? Now that I think about it, I think we started shooting from 28th. Yeah. Because we went to Universal Studios on 27th. <laughs> <laughs> priorities. Wow. Yeah, priorities. priorities. But to be fair, we were working on scripts while, while we were waiting for Harry Potter. So we were working. The Legit. whole time. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, we, um, sh yeah, I think, so I guess like six days, four cities. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yes. And we always talk about with independent films, how everybody has to wear multiple hats. Yes. So for Tokyo Lovers, uh, you were actor, writer, director. <laughs> uh, Nat, you were writer, director, editor, mm -hmm. sound, crafty like what, yeah. what else did you what else there did was you do? no crafty <laughs> i mean there, there were only five of us on the trip and yeah. two of them were acting for like 95 percent of the shoot so the crew really was just the three people behind the camera yeah so that was an interesting dynamic yeah well and definitely shout out to uh philip planta as well who was, who oh, was yes. there oh yes Yep. And then Y Sung Chen, who was our. Uh, I mean, he DP. was the one. Phil was the one who came up with the idea. Me and Natch were already planning a vacation to Tokyo. Okay. And then Jerome was going to be there anyways because uh, of his family and stuff. And so we were like, oh, well, that's that's great. Maybe we'll just hang out in Tokyo for a bit. Right. It was maybe like, maybe shoot something small. 
No, we didn't, that didn't even come up at that point. Yeah. And then Phil was like, oh, you guys are all going to be there? And I was like, yeah. So why don't we, like, bring a camera and join you guys? We were like, are and you somehow serious? convince why our DP to <laughs> yeah. leave his first Christmas with his newborn yeah. to come and shoot a <laughs> film with us instead. So crazy. Wow. I know. Yeah. Uh, and then, and then also, then of course, uh, Jerome as well. Yes. You know, yes. He was in the movie also. Uh, yeah. For, for a bit. <laughs> <laughs> for a bit. So uh. when doing a film like this in another country where, at least in the States, you know, if you want to film on the street, you have to go through a bunch of city permits and everything like that. With this, filming guerrilla style, just going through these various cities, mm. what were some of the reactions that you, people had around you? Was it just kind of normal? Did you guys have any weird conversations with people? I think it wasn't anything too... Like, we, we kept our gear very small. Um, okay. our, our mantra was basically, we have three backpacks, and everything we bring must fit inside these three backpacks. Sound, camera, our tripods has to fold up small. So we are very we left a very small mark anywhere we went. Nice. So to most people, we probably just look like tourists. Yeah, because um, we were speaking yeah. in English, too. So I think for oh, them, you okay. know, it's like, oh, they're not local. So they can tell. Mm-hmm. And especially we went to Kyoto and Osaka and there's lots of tourists there so there's a lot of people who carries around camera right and uh, we shot in C300 and DX4 and uh, sorry I keep saying DX4 I don't know why but anyway so uh, we we tried to make sure in pre pre production quote unquote I was like pre production (laughs) in the two hours before we started filming (laughs) Yeah. yeah but we told like Phil and why like can we make sure to bring something that is not big right Something that won't look like we're nope. doing a film Boom shoot. Boom arms or no, anything. No, no, no. We just had to make sure we don't look like that. And very, I think it was just a couple of times where people, like the security guard of this building would come and say, sorry, you can't shoot here. And okay. uh, But mm-hmm. n- n- none of, yeah, we've never had a yeah. problem with the police or anything. Um, yeah. There was a, an airport scene that you guys had to shoot from pretty far away. Yes. Oh, my that, gosh. That was like our very first scene that we shot. That was the very first scene so we shot. So that set the mood for the rest of the shoot. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> our, our first shot was uh, basically the two characters exiting an airport in um, Kyoto, I think. And um, it, it it's, it's so weird to distinguish what was film and what was vacation because it's the way we approached this film was like, okay, we're going on a vacation. We have an itiner- itinerary planned out as like tourists. And then if we find something along, along the way that's suitable for filming, we'll just do it. And then we got off the airplane at Kyoto. It was like our first day together. And um, we were like, oh, yeah, we, we we have a travel montage, right? Why don't we film? We're, we're at the airport. Why don't we get a shot of you guys walking out? And I'm like, okay, set up for that. And you know, shot in like a few takes and that was pretty much how we did everything in the film. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I think, uh, I mean, I think it helped that I, I was local. So uh, as we were writing, I had some ideas of like where we could go. Right. We weren't going completely aimlessly. We were like, okay, well, there's a really beautiful spot there. I don't know if we can shoot, but let's try. Right. Mm-hmm. And either way, it's going to be beautiful. So, you know, we'll still be able to enjoy as tourists. Yeah. And so um, we were able to sort of uh, have a, some sort of idea. And then we would all, I, I kind of always had like plan B, plan C, if that doesn't go, go well. Yeah. That was the thing about shooting in Japan. Like you point a camera in a direction, it looks beautiful. Yeah. Like that's, 
There, we were there so was lucky. one scene in particular where you guys are on swing sets. Yes. Or a, a swing set, not yeah. multiple swing sets. One swing set. So where was that shot? Uh, that was actually very close to my grandma's place. Oh, really? And I've actually, that w the, there's a path that leads to that park. And that's where I used to walk my dog all the time. And then I used to go to that park. And when, I, when we were, because we, we actually shot that scene at a different place in Kyoto. We had already done that scene. But, and we always check our dailies at the end of the day. And we were kind of thinking about the edit, and Natch was like, I think continuity-wise, this is like really hard. Yeah. Because I don't think we can edit it together. It's like there's just so many things that's so inconsistent. Oh, yeah. That, that, for, that scene where they're on the swing set was originally like them actually walking on the waterfront. giant, beautiful like, river in Kyoto. It's so gorgeous. Yeah. We wanted that. But they were like bikers. Like there's a couple getting married. The seagulls were kind of pissed off and like flying everywhere. <laughs> yeah. And, like, every, every take, every shot, every angle looks so different that we wouldn't be able to piece it together. So we're like... Okay, let's find like a more peaceful location. Yeah, and, and they're like, that. okay, that's good. That place, not a lot of people there. <laughs> they're not gonna come in and suddenly. The swing sets were kind of in like the corner of the park. Yeah, so. yeah, 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 yeah. So uh, yeah, we lucked out. And then um, the same with the uh, shrine scene too. We didn't right. even. We were actually planning to get that done uh, at a different spot, which was like a lot bigger. And then we were walking. And at this point, it was like 11 p.m. It was so late. New Year's and Eve. And we were like tired. We were so exhausted. And um, we were like, okay, well, are we going to get this shot? How are we going to do this? And we were walking, and then we found this small shrine. Actually, I knew that there was a small shrine. But I didn't know that it was lit like that. The mm. lanterns were lit like that. And that's only done in New Year's. So we oh, were okay. so lucky. Because we were worried about, like, how are we going to light this if it's going to be at night? But uh, we just locked out. Yeah, the only light we had for the shoot was like this, this little LED that was smaller than like the size of your fist, and that's the one that Philip currently has at the yes. after party. <laughs> yeah, that <laughs> for flashes for photography. Right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it definitely is bright, so that is that it is definitely nice. is bright, and we had to make do with it. Actually, if you actually watch the film back and you look at that um, the final scene on the steps of that that um, that shrine, mm -hmm. you'll see the light in the corner with like a little diffuser on it. But we it, it was it was Phil off camera just like holding it very still. Yeah. And you see this little ball thing that looks like a light, <laughs> and that's our light. That's our production light. Yeah. Nice. Nice. Yeah. I love those like those little stories. You know, <laughs> speaking of Philip, uh, there was a story of, of him as well, who was supposed to be in that set. Oh yeah. Uh, with the swings. <laughs> yes. Or in that shot with the swing set. Can we talk about that? Yeah, of course Let's we can talk it. about okay. that. <laughs> He's prompting you to talk about it. Oh. Okay, right, right. Oh. Wow. This is what we call in the biz a I'm really bad at getting hints. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Nash, do you want to talk about it? Uh, yeah. So for that scene, for we, we originally felt like it was uh, it felt a little bit empty. So we wanted to, I guess, dress the set a little bit. Yeah. There was like, <laughs> make it seem more authentic. Make it seem yes. more authentic. And for some reason, we thought putting a Filipino man on a bench would be a good idea. <laughs> and... Um, so we were like, hey, Phil, there's a bench. Do you want to, like, fill the background? And um, No, I asked him, can you be a homeless man on the bench? Yeah, and then he, 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 yeah, he went he to the bench. He looked at his resume, and he was like, yeah, yeah I can do that. <laughs> yep. Went to the bench, laid down, and it, 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 he pulled his pants down a little bit too far, and he was facing away from camera, and we were like, we were halfway through shooting the first second, and we are like, yeah, that might be a bit too distracting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so We were so interested in the background performer that we were like yeah maybe <laughs> maybe that's that's a little too much <laughs> yeah very animated like scratching i'm really glad that right. he wasn't uh in it because if he was then i think um that 
performance award was going to go to him. <laughs> so Fair. he would have stolen the whole show, you know. So I'm really glad. Really glad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I feel bad. I did not even mention that. Congratulations on oh. yet another award that you can add to, like, <laughs> the, I think right now, uh, times five, like, 68 okay. award. Nope. Oh my God. <laughs> you know? um, so not true. So not true. <laughs> but thank you so much. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm. Me and Jerome. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So with Tokyo Lovers, uh, before we move on to the next thing that you guys did, mm-hmm. so with that, what is kind of the the plan for it now? Mm-hmm. Now that it made its Canadian premiere at the Vancouver Asian Film Festival, what is next? Um, to be honest, we've been submitting to a lot of film festivals. I think it's tough to program because uh, I can tell it's a very specific time period. It's like definitely a winter mm. short yeah and winter of like 2017 yeah <laughs> and also um it's pr- it's like 19 minutes mm-hmm. so i think for some festivals it's hard to program it so gotcha. we're really glad that VAF was and i think this is perfect that we got to premiere it in vancouver but um hopefully we get to screen it more yeah excellent mm-hmm. yeah all right uh, and then do you guys have social media for just that one or is it just kind oh, of yes, tied to oh yes we do okay. it's all uh, Tokyo Lovers Film right for Twitter Instagram and Facebook as well mm-hmm. Tokyo Lovers Film fantastic so yeah. once that does hit the festival circuit people can check that out yes uh, the links will be in the description below so they can just follow it right away yes uh, moving on to the next project that you guys did mm-hmm. Kudo yes boom nailed it boom <laughs> uh, way of the bow mic drop we won't uh, do it but I no. see it I see it definitely not <laughs> uh, so with this film, so it talked about kind of the ancient form of Japanese archery. Yes. Done by a local dojo or local yeah. club. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So talk a little bit about that. Like, did you know about this program beforehand or was this something that was exposed to I you? I like really uh, from a distance knew about it because they always perform at the Powell Street Festival. Okay. And um, the Powell Street Festival is, uh, so Powell Street used to be the Japanese district back in the days in Vancouver. And now every year, uh, like the first week of August, I think, which is my birthday. (laughs) Wow. Mm -hmm. So they always host um, a party over the weekend. They block the street and it's like a whole vendors and all that. And they always practice at Japanese uh, language school, which has been around for a long, long time. And that was the school where people went to uh, uh, who who lived on Powell Street. Oh, okay. So now it's a Japanese language school that's open to adults or, uh, during the week and then weekends. Um, kids come to learn Japanese. Nice. Who are like from Japan but now live in Vancouver mm-hmm. and go to public schools during the week. But on Saturdays they would come to like, do Japanese classes. Okay. So um, they have a giant gymnasium and then uh, Kudo Association practices there every Monday and Saturday. So I didn't know that that was like an ongoing thing. And then We Heart Canada plus Japan 90 was this event that VAF hosted. And they did uh, we, Ca- we, we Heart Canada 150 last year to celebrate 150 years of Canada. Mm-hmm. So this year was to celebrate the friendship between Japan and Canada for 90 years. And um, I didn't, I, I, I saw it and I thought, oh, that's really cool. But like, I don't know if I can handle it because I was just finishing up... Um, a short with uh, Natch, it's, it, which was called The Day We Met. And um, 
Yeah, I was like, oh, is it, can, can I handle it? I don't know. Add and one then one more thing to your already overflowing plate. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just, I, I'm, I was also scared that how, well, what if I can't do justice? Mm. You know, because it, of course, it, it has so much cultural her heritage. So, uh, but then I, Lynn, who's the festival director, she kind of convinced me and said, like, no, but you know. There aren't a lot of Japanese filmmakers. Like you got to be there, and I was like, yeah, no, that's true. Like I got to represent. So um, I went there, and then they had a lot of Japanese nonprofit Japanese associations. So we had interviews with each of them. I actually only got to do it two because I had to go to a different event that mm -hmm. night. Classic. So right. <laughs> um, I only got to meet with two of them, uh, but one of them was the Kudo Association, and I instantly was like, oh my god. I want them. I want them so bad. But they, uh, they're the ones who pick me. Nice. So I was like, okay, well, we'll see how it goes. And they might not even, nobody might not even pick me, you know? So uh, I was lucky that they picked me. And then um, we had, and then they invited me to Powell Street Festival to see their practice. So I can get a feel of like what they, what they are, what mm -hmm. they, how they do everything. And then get the feel of the group. Because it's a group of people who practice yeah. this. So, yeah, that's how it started. Very cool. Now, is that one, since it was for a very specific thing, you know, this iHeart Canada and Japan mm. 90, where can people watch that or is it available on some channels? That is a very great question because I actually don't know. Okay. I, I mean, I have, I have my link, but right. I don't know because uh, it... Technically, I think it's it belongs to like also me and Bath and the consulate of Japan. Gotcha. Uh, Canada, Vancouver consulate. So uh, hopefully they re uh, release it online because the people at the Kyoto Association they all told me which is just so nice that this is like the best thing that's happened to Canada's Kyoto Association. Awesome. Because we've never gotten uh, attention like this, and people yeah. if they get to watch this video, they'll know that. Kudo is not just for Japanese people. Like mm -hmm. it's it's a practice that actually is like it's so much closer to meditation than anything. That was something that was really insightful when I was watching it. That's is so that cool, it yeah. is meditating with arrows. Yeah. You know, is what one of the, the people said. Yeah. And that was really interesting. I loved how like for example, Linda, who is um uh the owner, Mike's wife. Okay. So she's the mother of the two daughters. I love that she brings her kids, and the kids are like exposed to that culture from mm -hmm. that age, and also exposed to so many different kinds of adults there yeah. who come from different kind of backgrounds, but all practicing the one same disciplined practice. And they all share the same, um, uh, the I guess the soul that comes to comes with the practice and the discipline and and um i think that's how cultures get it, it evolves and it gets passed down so i loved seeing that like she was there and she that was like her serenity yeah. you know which is it's hard for mothers to find that and and it was so cool that she kept saying like yeah i i just need 15 minutes a week and but when i don't have that i go crazy yeah and it's so cool very cool uh, and then one last thing that I forgot to mention when we were talking about Tokyo Lovers. One similarity uh, that I have been uh, exposed to now with your filmmaking, now that mm. I've seen a couple of them, yeah. is both with Akashi and with Tokyo Lovers, you have voiceover narration. 
mm. as kind of its own character. Right. So <laughs> I would love to hear kind of more about that. And obviously, I mean, now that I've seen that in a couple of films, it is definitely a stylistic choice. Mm. And so I'd like to hear kind of where that comes from. Um, I think for Tokyo lovers, like me and Natch, after editing, we noticed that something was missing. Gotcha. Something that uh, I per- I feel. Go- do you want to? I, I think it's because of the the way we wrote it. Like it was so on the go. We were writing it to fit our trip, our locations. That there, it a lot of it felt disconnected when we put it together in the editing room, like a month or two later, where we felt like yeah, something was missing. Something didn't feel like. I think the the relationship of the, of the two was there in the script and in the performance, but. I whenever I make a film, and I think that's something that we relate to, we, we relate as directors and writers, is that it's got to be something bigger than just about um, these two characters like living. There's mm-hmm. something. There has to be a bigger message, and it was that was kind of miss. I felt like something was missing. Gotcha. So uh, we had a chat, and I told mm-hmm. <laughs> I told Natch like. Can I? Can you just trust me? Can I just write a monologue, and then can you look at it, and then we can edit it and see if it works? Mm-hmm. And then he was like, "Okay, cool." And then I wrote the the monologue, and it was it came from what I felt like was missing from the show, gotcha. which was almost like a love letter to the people who are like them in yep. in the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, and I think that's uh, for Tokyo lovers. Uh, narration it was almost like supplementing the the missing pieces that kind of happened probably from the gorilla shoot mm-hmm. because we're so busy trying to figure out the day mm-hmm. and right. doing rewrites literally on the days yeah but um, with Akashi um, I don't know but I don't know I think there's a part of me that I think uh, is kind of overlooking what's happening in the movie like there's a third person. Third person narrator yeah. from the future. Yeah, yeah, from the future, or you know, or someone who has already left the world. Who knows? But um, there's, there's, or you know, someone in the past, like the grandmother's case. Mm-hmm. Like yeah, you know, yeah. it's just uh, something that internally they think about that you don't necessarily have to have them talk about. So. Excellent. Yeah. Very maybe cool. Maybe that's why I don't know. Well, both of you two are extremely busy all the time. Uh, where can people find both of you on social media? And that way they can keep up with all of your adventures, be it your travel adventures all over the world, or just, I mean, all of the things that you are doing locally, like the plays that you are writing, directing, all of those things. <laughs> um, I, I have a Facebook page. It's just Mayumi Yoshida. And then... Uh, uh, my all my social media handles is I'm Mayumi. It's like I M M Y Y O U M E. It's because people have a hard time pronouncing my name. They're like Mayumi, Miami. I've oh. gotten oh my god Buen the other Benito. day. Benito, Amiami. <laughs> yeah, I know. Oh my god, the other day I got Manu Ma- at Starbucks. <laughs> Manu. I literally Just stood there and was like, is this mine? And they're like, yeah, I don't know. It's Manu. It's like, okay, yep, I think that's, that's mine. Yeah, <laughs> You're like, no, I can see that, but is it mine? I know, I know. Yeah. So nice. uh, that's my social media handle. Okay. Yes. 
I'm on Instagram and Twitter at Snatch Says, and um, my company's called This Is a Spoon. We're on Facebook. Check out our website. We do some really cool stuff. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, uh, Natch and Mayumi, <laughs> for making the time uh, to talk about your amazing films here at the festival. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Love you. <laughs> thank you. Fresh off of his big win, uh, I'm sitting around with filmmaker Alex Chu, the writer and director of the film for Izzy. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me. So, like I mentioned, fresh off of, uh, off of your win, so congratulations. Now, for Izzy is this kind of multi-generational story of two sets of parents and their siblings, or siblings, of their children, as they're each dealing with their own conflicts. Now, I would love to hear about when you came up with the idea for those kind of unique conflicts, because both families are going through their own transitions and their own growth. So when did this idea kind of first started, first start growing, and then when did you start this process? Where we started this process was a few years ago when I was coming off uh, my first feature, and I had worked with uh, Jim and Elizabeth, who, had, who, pl who play the parents in For Izzy, as well as Jenny, who is also one of the lead actors in my prior film. And I just wanted to work with him again. And so essentially, I mean, I, I, the whole genesis of the film started off with me and Jenny having lunch together and just talking through some ideas about film and stuff. And, and, uh, and then the genesis of having, you know, th this idea of broken families coming together, I think just kind of resonated with both me and her about um, just, just about like, you know, telling that kind of story. And um, in terms of it, you know, the addiction part of it is um, unfortunately runs in my family. So it was one of those mm. things where like that was something that I, I knew very well. And it was like, OK, that that does, I think, kind of ups the stakes in terms of how this how you can kind of bring these two families together. Um, and yeah, I mean, that's that's really kind of the genesis of the heart, the heart and soul of the story kind of came from the fact of I just wanted to tell this story of how two families, two broken families come together and how a lot of what happens when it comes to courage comes from a place of love and how these characters learn that, you know, the only way you can kind of grow as a person comes and the courage to grow as a person comes from a place of love, a love for the other person, you know, and I think all four characters kind of discover that throughout the process. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, you know, how you mentioned the, the addiction side and, and your kind of family ties with that. A lot of people when doing a project like this that deals with those issues, find it cathartic, you know, to kind of see it from almost that objective point of view. What were some things that you learned during this process that helped you with that kind of realization? Well, I mean, I think with, when it comes to addiction, I thought, I mean, we were very deliberate about this. And I, when, when I first spoke to Michelle, she was the, the fourth actor that, you know, I didn't know Michelle before we cast her. Oh, wow. Um, but I was very deliberate about telling her what the story was about, which is particularly from her character standpoint, which is the story is about recovery, not about addiction. Mm. And I think that is also for my own personal story and background of, of people I know, my family, that have suffered from it, which is a lot of films and stories frame the narrative around the addiction. Like, how did you get addicted? What was happening? How, you know, what were the conditions that got you addicted? But a lot of people I know, including people in my own family, it's like 
where the story is more interesting and more compelling is what was the story of recovery. Absolutely. Right? And I think, and I don't see that a lot in a, in a lot of films, TV shows, stories. And, it, and I thought that was, just from a personal standpoint, important to honor because I, I really do feel that for people that are in recovery, that those are the stories that are more resonant. You Absolutely. know, like it doesn't really matter how you got addicted. It really doesn't because there's there's a gazillion different, and sometimes the ways, you, especially with the opioid with the opioid crisis that we have today across North America, whether it's the U.S. or Canada, I mean, sometimes it's very banal yeah. in terms of how it happens. But the more compelling story is how do you overcome it? How when you are in the throes of it, how do you actually overcome it? And a lot of that comes from again courage, and and love. You know, and I love that you showed in one of the scenes when with a group recovery. Yes, how you know she was saying three days, you know, and people were saying seven days and yes. thirty days, and even when she says three days, and everybody claps, yes. and everybody like gives her props because, again, speaking on recovery, it does not matter if it is one day, two days, ten years, everything, every step that you are taking on that path to recovery needs to be applauded, needs to be honored. And you really showed that. And I, I really yeah, appreciated that. I pre yeah. And I, that was, I mean, that's a direct from the 12-step program. Mm -hmm. I know in the 12-step world, you're not supposed to kind of talk about 12 steps. It's like right. Fight Club, right? <laughs> like, you know, you know. But I do feel like in spite of all the criticisms of 12-step, while I don't personally feel that 12-step alone will help solve everybody's, you know, will, will be the one thing that will help everybody's recovery. Mm -hmm. I do feel that one of the effective methods that 12 steps do is when it comes to framing the narrative in terms of how you recover. Yeah. Right? And I think that's a lot of 12 step, whether they are, whether it's deliberate or not, is about storytelling. You know, sometimes depending on the program or depending on the group, Mm -hmm. It can get into like narratives about addiction, but I think the more effective ones, in my personal opinion, um, is when those 12-step groups are focused more on framing a narrative around how they're recovering, you know, because I think that, you know, that's where the sponsors come in and mm -hmm. that's when like, you know, and, and I think that is a very important, it can be an important complement to whatever other therapies or whatever other uh, um, medical treatments are getting on top of, you know, the 12-step the, the, the program. Excellent. Now, that is just one of the children in yes. the film. The other child in the film. So this is somebody who is on the spectrum, on the autism spectrum. And again, you had a very intense and yet deliberate and caring way to show somebody on the spectrum as an adult, especially as a woman, and the things that make that journey so much different. So was that something that I know that we heard the actor, you know, speak on that, you know, at the award ceremony, you know, how she did a lot of research, you know, read books, watched videos. When you were first writing this story and you had that character in mind, what was the research that you did to kind of prepare yourself for creating a character like that? I mean, that was really much a partnership between me and Jenny. So she oh, wow. was really involved. I mean, she's a producer on the film. So mm -hmm. She was involved pretty much from the beginning of the, of the process and really kind of um, from a producer standpoint held me very held me accountable as a writer to make sure that 
you know, we were honoring the truth of what that community is going through and also just honoring the truth of how misunderstood autism really is and yeah. how diverse it really is in a way by making her character so specific because in our research when it comes to autism we realize that what is one person's experience is not the same as others and I, th I think like and this is my own theory this is not based on science or anything right after just anecdotally from having been interacting with with so many members in the autism community of you know across the spectrum is that mm -hmm. I think for the time being autism is a word that is a catch-all for what I think we will find out is a much more diverse myriad of neurological conditions absolutely much like terminal illness is a catch-all for everything from cancer to ALS to whatever and I think like because when you see like so-called people on the spectrum which is a linear thing it's like oh you're low functioning high functioning that isn't really accurate because you might have somebody who is high functioning in certain respects but low functioning in other respects like you know we met somebody who was like you know supposedly low functioning right which by all intents and measures means that they're completely nonverbal and therefore not quite as social not quite as uh, intellectually able to, 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 to be aware of what's going on, and yet this person was incredibly aware, but just nonverbal, so they could only uh, inter uh, communicate with their iPad. Interesting. But that person knew exactly what everything was going on. Yeah. And there's other, person, there's other people who are high-functioning in a sense that, you know, they're very eccentric, you know, they can memorize a lot, you know, they're just, they're very focused on certain things, they... they mathematical sort of savants in some respects, mm -hmm. but low functioning in other respects where they're social, you know, they don't get a lot of social cues. And so I think that's kind of the, the biggest thing, the biggest takeaway we got from just from our limited research of, you know, the sample size that we had dealt with that there was such a, a diversity and also speaking to some, the caretakers and as well as healthcare workers and Jenny's research with, you know, various documentaries, scientific research that, Again, I think it's just incredibly misunderstood, which is why I think when we talk to people with autism and when they've seen some of the, when they've seen this film and caretakers are like, oh, this resonates, even though Laura as a character may not exactly be the person that they're referencing, you know, because, you know, we honor the fact that it's so specific. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. Now, a lot of this movie is in Cantonese. Yes. You know, and English. That blending of the two was really well done because any of us who know people who speak multiple languages, if you're around them enough that consciously or not even consciously, unconsciously slipping from one language to another, that seamless transition was very evident in the film. And it was just very authentic and very true to, again, those experiences that a lot of us have had with various languages. Yes. So that was just, that was really well done. I wanted to give you, you know, props on that. Oh, thank you. And did all of the actors involved speak Cantonese or was it something where if they did not, when those scenes were going on, was it having to do with like the blocking and the script that, that everything was translated? Well, the, uh, the actress playing the younger characters did not speak Cantonese. Okay. Um, they're Mandarin speaking okay. by background. Um, but I, I mean, I think a big part, a big testament is to the actors and to the fact that they prepared 
those roles, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and the fact that, I mean, I involved them in the development process from the very beginning because I wrote those roles for them, particularly for those the three of the four actors, that, you know, they, they knew those characters. I mean, like, it took about a year to write, to go through the about, I want to say, 10 drafts of the script. Wow. But because of that, the actors also lived with that script for a year before we even shot a frame of film. So, so I think... Very intimate. So, were, yeah. So by the time we actually got to shooting, they understood those characters so well. So even though, you know, they might be speaking Cantonese, you kind of understood what was going mm-hmm. on. And even to the point where, like, you know, when we were on set, like, the crew may not have understood, but you kind of understood what was going, because the crew understood the script. You know, they, they had read the script a lot, so they, they kind of understood what was going on. And I think, you know, when you have actors that are that good, in a way, it doesn't matter what language yeah. you're speaking. You can get a sense for what's going on, you know? I think it's the magic of it. You know, that when people talk about opera. Yeah. Like, if you're watching an Italian opera... Yeah, you don't need to understand yeah, Italian. even if you're not reading it on top, you know, like they have in most opera houses... It is the performances. It is the emotion. Exactly. And if so, it's executed well, yeah. you can get what's going on, you know? Excellent. Now, the other thing that was very evident in this film is your love of hip-hop and yes. music because yes. there is a lot of rhyming, uh, a lot of different people just dropping bars at various points. Yes. So was that something also that while you were working this, what was the music that you were listening to while you were making this film? I was trying not to listen to any music as a res- you know I have a music background mm-hmm. to know that depending on the on the project and, and circumstances I try not to listen to music because I know how impressionable music can be yeah. and um, uh, for this particular project I mean I didn't have any kind of other than the spoken verse mm-hmm. uh, I didn't have really kind of a clear idea in the writing process what the music was going to be. It was more kind of a post-production thing where once we started getting a rough cut, you know, you, you have the picture there, then you can got to kind of sense, okay, what kind of music will work, gotcha. you know, and and that's kind of where it started. And then it's just a matter of trial and error where you're, you're trying different music cues and finding a what might or might not work and what blends well from one music cue to another. You know, and so that that's kind of how it worked. And in terms of the spoken verse, a lot of that was, you know, a, a function of from the very beginning of the film, mm-hmm. I was trying to get across a lot of information. Right. But I was trying to do it in a way where it's like, it's basically a form of cheating where you're like, okay, how can I get across a bunch of information in a creative way that's interesting? You know, it's sort of my way of breaking the rules of you do not... You do not provide a lot of exposition as a writer, but I'm like, okay, I'm going to break that rule. I'm going to provide exposition, mm-hmm. but how do I do it in a way that is somewhat interesting enough to get the audience engaged? You know? And I think that's, that's, that was the genesis of it. And you know, in terms of hip-hop, that was, you know, I grew up around hip-hop, so mm-hmm. you know, I just kind of came up with some of those rhymes as a way to, to just make it more interesting as opposed to her just giving a monologue. Fantastic. And then the two older uh, actors, the parents in this film, their journey, you know, together was adorable. It was, it was just oh, so thank you. cute to watch. And it was just, it was genuine. It felt like we were watching two real people bonding over their unique but also shared experiences, you know, as the film progresses. Yeah. So that was just, I wanted to, you know, talk about that and just, it was, it felt real. It felt authentic. 
So, and those are those were two of the actors that you had worked with before in other yes. projects. Okay. I mean, that's a that's mostly credit to them because I mean I think I'm not of that age, mm -hmm. so I don't know if I was at that age what a romantic relationship would evolve. So I kind of wrote you know a skeleton of it and early drafts of it the best I could, but both Jim and Elizabeth had a lot of input in terms of, you know, what would happen. Like, well, you know, and some of the early drafts, it was kind of a reflection more of somebody who's not at that age mm -hmm. where it was more physically demonstrative. And they're like, mm. I think the biggest insight I got from them was like, well, if we, you know, at that age, if you're still single and you meet somebody, you've kind of been through enough life experience <laughs> to go, you don't need to be that demonstrative romantically. Yeah. Like you kind of get it. Yeah. You know, and you don't need to go through that energy of all that BS when it comes mm -hmm. to, you know, all, all the accoutrements of, of romance that that's all gone, you know, yeah. and that was, you know, they and they really kind of pushed pushed on that. It's like, yeah, that's that's just not how it would work. And uh, and they kind of gave me a lot of guidance on that on that front, because that's the life. Ex that's a life experience that I don't have. Mm -hmm. And well, I kind of that you that. were receptive to that, not only receptive but truly made it a part of, of the film and part of the process. So, excellent. Yeah. Now, with 4 Izzy, does this, is this going to have a larger festival run? And if so, what is the trajectory? Where can people watch this amazing film? So, we're actually near the end of our festival run. Okay. And so, we're releasing, depending on when this podcast is coming out, but we're releasing on November 15th. On, oh, right. uh, yeah, you said yes. on, on all platforms. Yeah, so on Amazon, iTunes, Google Play, and for those who don't have access to those platforms in different countries, it'll be available directly on our website at forizzy.com. Fantastic. So Alex Chu, the filmmaker, writer-director of For Izzy, thank you for taking the time. And also, where can people find you on social media so they can follow your journey? Uh, so for the film, it's at For Izzy the Movie on all platforms, for uh, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Uh, my own personal account is at the real Alex Chu on Twitter. Yep. Yes, Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. Excellent. Thank you again, Alex. All right. Thank you so much, man. Yeah. Alexander Cuerdo, the director and producer of, I'm just going to say right now, the tastiest film <laughs> uh, of the Vancouver Asian <laughs> Film Festival. The film was Ulam Main Dish. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So this film, this documentary, is about Filipino food and heritage and family and food and food. <laughs> <laughs> and I think there was some food in it as well. And a little more food. And a little more. So not even joking, as I am sitting in the screening for this film, I just happen to be sitting next to some Filipino folks. <laughs> Every time you show a dish on screen, just... Uh. <laughs> and I'm like, come on, guys. I was like, really? <laughs> so that is what definitely, can I say? definitely a credit uh, to you. Oh, thank you so much. So we, we do love our food. <laughs> <laughs> so when it came to doing a documentary specifically about Filipino food, and not just Filipino food, the Filipi Filipino food experience. So when you're writing, when you're kind of coming up with mm -hmm. this film, what was the first thing that came to your mind? What was the first dish? that came to your mind when you were like, this is something that is critical to include? You know what's funny is I've been asked before if you can define a cuisine by its dishes. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's partially true. 
Um, I've also been asked if you can define a cuisine by its flavor profile, mm. and that's also partially true. I think it's it's a little bit of everything. It's it's the dishes, it's the flavor profile, and also it's the experience you have when you eat it. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I was really trying to capture when making the movie. Um, the dishes, you know, if you've had Filipino food before, you've had probably chicken adobo, uh, which is like a savory stew um, that's you know, really flavored with soy sauce and vinegar and, uh, you know, my version was bay leaves and black peppercorns and, you know, that kind of thing. Um, You may also have had pancit, which is like a rice noodle dish. Um, You may have had lumpia in Shanghai, which are the tiny, crispy uh, rolls that you see at every Filipino party. Right. (laughs) Um, But I feel like at the end of the day, Filipino food is so much more than just the individual dishes, Uh, like any cuisine. You know, you can't really reduce all of American cuisine down to hot dogs and hamburgers, right? Right. Um, You know, or you can't say, oh, well, all of Canada is maple syrup, you know. Maple syrup and poutine. (laughs) Right. Right. (laughs) I mean, it would be so, you know sort of um, simplifying. Mm -hmm. And so I think that the dishes are part of it. Um, The other part is sort of the flavor profile, which is very um, savory and umami and sour. Um, Mm -hmm. There's a lot of fermented foods. Um, So that's part of it. And then the last part of it um, is really the experience you have, which, again, if you've met a Filipino... (laughs) Right. You know, you've eaten at someone's house. You know that when you when you eat with a Filipino person, you're part of the family. You know, you're, you're, you become part of the family. And so that's kind of what I was trying to communicate as well with the film. You know, we, um, we're a very community-based culture, you know, and I think we really try and welcome people in. Uh, and you can say that about other ethnic cuisines as well, but mm-hmm. I experienced it firsthand, you know, growing up. And I think that part of when you go to a restaurant and when you experience a cuisine, you know, part of what you remember is uh, how do people treat you? Mm-hmm. You know, what is it like eating it? Do you eat it at a big table? Do you eat it alone? Do you, you know, and so with Filipino food, it's always a lot of people. It's a right. lot of noise. Uh, <laughs> it's a lot of hugging, a lot of sometimes crying. You know, it's very, very communal and uh, it's very exciting. Nice. One of the things that as I was watching it that... I learned, you know, when it shows the archipelago of the Philippines. Mm-hmm. Now, correct me on the number. What 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 are the approximate number? There are a couple numbers thrown out in the documentary. Over seven thousand islands. Seven thousand <laughs> islands in the in the Philippines. You know, That's in that lot. archipelago. And you were saying that even on one island, from one house to two houses down. The flavors, the texture, the profile can change, let alone on one island, 7,000 islands. Yes. That fascinates me. And you did a really good job of showing kind of the overlay Mm -hmm. of the Philippines Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. the flags of the different countries that have, in a nice way, been there before. Yes. (laughs) Um, Colonized. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, colonized. Yep. You know, different areas at different mm-hmm. times, and the way that that really influenced mm-hmm. the food. Now, how much of that did you know beforehand, just kind of growing up in that culture, and how much of it really had to do with research? 
You know, it was, it was again, a little bit of a mix. Um, I was very lucky growing up. I was able to go back to the Philippines uh, every few years. On um, island number 6,124. Yeah. <laughs> so real. <laughs> but it's true. Um, you know, I was able to go back every few years because my, my grandparents were there, my lolas and lolos, um, extended family, my aunts and uncles. And so um, I was able to kind of experience that firsthand. But when it came to the actual numbers, when it came to the real history, you know, I didn't learn that in the U.S. I had to find yeah. that out on my own because it's really not taught in our schools. Right. And, you know, and and if you you know learn it in college, you know, you're usually an Asian studies major or you're part of a uh, Asian specific group, mm -hmm. or maybe you just took it upon yourself to learn. But for me, you know, this whole process of making the movie was also me learning a lot about my own culture and like the real you know history of like how we came to be this way mm -hmm. you know some people call filipino food the original fusion food and it's because of all of the influences mm -hmm. um you know over the years war trade colonialism you know you name it um we've sort of interacted with it in that in that area so since it was not part of the history that you knew <laughs> growing up it was really that learning it once you started making this film yes um, it was uh, it was a learning process. It was a process of me reconnecting with my roots. Mm -hmm. Now, was it also reconnecting with a lot of food? That I mean, I think that <laughs> when if we if we have not said food enough, but it is one of the things where any people who have been on a set before, the crafty ranges from everything from like juice boxes and peanut butter sandwiches to nicer things. <laughs> I am pretty sure you have every crafty beat in the history of filmmaking. It was really good crafty. Yeah. It was freshly made. Because <laughs> every time they make this dish and they bring it up there and they take the shot, I know that I'm like, okay, somebody got to eat that. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure it was Allie. <laughs> yeah, it was a, it was a very uh, tough and delicious job. Right. Somebody had to do it. Right. <laughs> and that was the other thing that was really interesting about your film is that you were not shooting at restaurants at closing or anything like that. Like, service was going on or actively or you know is during prep you know mm -hmm. and so that activity that life mm -hmm. was there in the film where yes. there were multiple scenes where you'd be interviewing a subject mm -hmm. and either their partner business partner mm -hmm. or otherwise mm -hmm. would be walking behind them mm -hmm. it was like the show does not stop it does not like it this does needs not. to happen because <laughs> yeah. the restaurant opens in an hour exactly and I think that you know it was funny it was sort of a happy accident um, that that happened because uh, we really had to just work around the chef's schedules mm -hmm. you know they were all working chefs still are they all have open restaurants so we would either film uh, very early in the morning or most often between service so between lunch wow. and dinner and that really means you're cleaning up from lunch you're yeah. prepping for dinner <laughs> So there's really no break. You know? Well, the break was yeah. sitting down to talk to you. Exactly, exactly. So, um, you know, we were so lucky that the chefs really gave us their time. And um, they wanted to do it because, uh, you know, they want to do it for the culture mm -hmm. at the end of the day. And you spanned from New York and L.A. mainly. Those, yes. Those are the two yes. major cities. What were some cities that you went to that maybe either you filmed and maybe did not make the cut or that you just wanted to do but... I mean, did not have time. Oh, my gosh. So we wanted to do so many more. Mm -hmm. um, the issue is we didn't have the money. Fair. <laughs> you know? Totally fair. Like, 
that's the number one question we've gotten in every city is why not our city you know and that was because um, we just didn't have the resources so mm -hmm. we want to do a part two okay <laughs> you know, we would love to do I mean there is two. a huge cliffhanger at the end of this you have yeah. to watch it to find out so <laughs> where does true. the food go yeah it's true it's true and that is the question is what's the future of our cuisine you mm -hmm. know uh, we don't just want to be a trending topic we want to be um, long lasting you know part of the world so Absolutely. Very hopeful. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, the food, the film was fantastic. Thank you. The food looked fantastic. Thank and I really you. appreciated the respect and heritage, you know, that you were really showing the rest of the audience. Well, watching the film and seeing, you know, the banana leaves yes. on the table and mm -hmm. all of the food that just gets put in the middle mm -hmm. and everybody just kind of like digging in, using mm -hmm. their hands. Mm -hmm. What is something that you really want people to dig into this film and really pull from it? That's a great question. <laughs> I Thank think you. that uh, I think that it's really to just try Filipino food. You know, give it a chance, make it part of your conversation. Um, when you th when you're saying, "Well, where should we go to eat tonight?" You know, think about Filipino food um, because at the end of the day, if we can keep these restaurants open, they can remain the community centers that they are, and they can also help represent us as uh, Asians in both America and Canada. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that uh, really, it's all about pushing the culture forward and being able to um, really be proud of who we are. You know, and so a little bit of that, but really to just try Filipino food. Thank you, uh, Alexandra Cuerto. Now, where can people find the film online, yes. uh, social media, and yours as well? Absolutely. So uh, the best place to look up future screenings is ulamthemovie.com. Uh, we're also on social media, on Instagram and Facebook, at ulamthemovie. And uh, if you want to stalk me as well or DM me any questions, I'm at Alexandra Cuerto uh, on Instagram as well. So um, please stay tuned. We are really excited. We're going to have a limited theatrical release in December. And uh, we're also going to be available on iTunes and all the platforms just in time for Christmas. So uh, look out for Ulam. <laughs> we absolutely. Well, so the film is Ulam Main Dish, and I've been speaking with the director and producer, Alexander Cuarto. Thank you again. Thanks. Yeah! I hope you enjoyed those conversations that I had with my guests. Uh, like I mentioned in one of the interviews, that was recorded at the after party in the middle of the bar. So it was a little bit noisy for some of those. Uh, I apologize for that, but there was not really much I could do about it. Uh, but it was just great sitting down with everybody Thank you again to everybody who sat down with me. There were so many other filmmakers that I wanted to have on the show during that weekend, but scheduling was really crazy. So hopefully, you know, in the next couple of weeks, I will be able to connect with some more of those people and have them just on my show and talk about their projects. So for the About to Review podcast, the upcoming episode uh, is back to your regularly scheduling, wow, regular scheduled programming. Uh, which is a film review podcast. So next week's episode will include reviews for A Girl in the Spider's Web, a new dragon tattoo story, uh, the new Grinch movie by Illumination Studios, Widows, and Overlord. So that will be on an upcoming episode of the About to Review podcast. For this episode, uh, not just for this episode, actually, since, you're, since you have been listening to all of that, thank you so much for listening. Make sure to follow the podcast on social media at About to Review, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast on the podcast platform of your choice. Facebook changed the way that they are doing ratings, where you cannot really rate it, you just recommend it. 
But if you go on facebook.com slash about to review and leave a recommendation, that would be fantastic. If you go to abouttoreview.com, you can see full links to the show notes and guests. You can also support the show by clicking any of these support links to either the PayPal if you want to give a direct donation or if you want to pick something out from the Amazon wish list. That would be amazing. So thank you again to my listeners. Thank you to my guests for this episode of the About to Review podcast. I have been your host, that guy named John, and we will see you next time. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat.